Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communication. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through a very special show with my co-host, Frank Washcook. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank but you. This is a big show, isn't it? Because yeah. we're celebrating our 25th anniversary in the United States. Big Bumper bunch of content went live this morning as we uh, record. So, yeah, it's been a great uh, reflection on uh, 25 years, hasn't it? It's exciting stuff. And if you haven't checked out the package of content we have online, I think it's really informative. You know, for instance, we worked on an infographic about what were the biggest agencies back in 98. And I think it would open some eyes if you uh, if you take a look at today. Definitely some surprises on there. Yeah, that would be a good quiz question. Yeah. What were the top three then? So lots of now? good stuff online. Absolutely. And we'll dig into that. And um, But lots of other stuff going on, especially in New York City. We've yep. got the UN General Assembly. We've got the Clinton Global Initiative. We've got uh, Climate Week as part of that and various things going on. Lots of uh, stuff happening at the weekend with big set-piece interviews with pro former President Trump on Meet the Press, with President Zelensky of Ukraine on 60 Minutes. We had uh, our reporter Jess Ruderman down at the Forbes Power Women's Summit last week and some big news stories breaking as well. So we'll dig into all those. But first of all, we're going to welcome our special guest. It's Shari Rudolph, who's the CMO and Chief Development Officer at Good360. Shari, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hello, hello, Steve and Frank. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And you're in town for the Clinton Global Initiative. So you have been spending time there. And in fact, you're up there as we speak to you. So we'll get some thoughts from you on that whole event and what people are talking about and thinking about. But first of all, tell the folks, uh, our good listeners, what Good360 is all about. What's what's the organization? Uh, what's the mission? And what are you, what are you there to uh, achieve? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity. So Good360 is a national nonprofit headquartered just outside of Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, Virginia. And our mission is to close the need gap. And the best way to give an idea of what that means or context for that is to understand a couple of key things. One is that right now about 40% of U.S. households are going without the basic essentials and necessities that they need day to day. Things like clothing, shoes, personal care items, items for their home. But at the same time, there's over a trillion dollars in excess goods and consumer returns combined in the U.S. alone every single year. And so there's a, there's an opportunity for somebody and that somebody is Good360 to sort of sit in the middle of those dynamics and that ecosystem and bring those th two things together. You have all this need on one side, but all of this excess product on the other side. Why not bring that together? And that's what we call closing the need gap. So we've been doing it for 40 years. We're actually celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. Ah, big congrats. Thank you. Yes, we're really proud of that work that we've done. Um, last year, we distributed just over $2.5 billion in needed goods through a network of, of trusted and vetted nonprofit partners. And we work with hundreds of socially responsible companies who provide us with the donated goods. So tell us how it works. Is, is, um, is there a technology platform involved in bringing all that together? Is it, if you've been around 40 years, you're very experienced in this and you've got lots of institutional knowledge, I guess, and relationships. Tell us how the nuts and bolts of it work and maybe give us an example of you know a big company and where you've uh, taken the excess and, and distributed it or got it to the right places, right? Or the right nonprofits. 
Yeah, sure. So we work with, um, like I said, hundreds of companies. A lot of those are Fortune 50 and Fortune 100 companies that have looked at the uh, waste that's in the system, the need that's in our communities, and want to be able to do something to, to help with that. And then the reality is that sometimes things are just overproduced. Uh, consumer tastes change fairly frequently. There could be a misprint or a typo on product packaging, and so it can't be sold through normal retail channels. And so a lot of those companies will turn to Good360 to make sure that there's a responsible way of getting those products out into the system and get those goods to where they can do the most good. So we work with um, a lot of different organizations from Amazon and Walmart, uh, brands like Nike and Mattel. So a lot in the retail and the consumer brand space. Um, there's the, Those are the folks who produce the, the needs that are most needed in our communities, like clothing and shoes, baby care items, personal care items, diapers, school supplies. Those are the things that are generally the highest need. And the, the nuts and bolts of it are, are uh, there's a few different ways that we get goods to where, where they can do the most good. Um, we have so many nonprofit partners around the country. And like I said, they're all vetted and approved to work with Good360. So that means that we make sure that they are, in fact, a valid 501c3 nonprofit registered with the IRS here in the United States. We make sure that they are doing work that it is in alignment with their stated mission. And one of the most important things for us is providing access. So in this network of nonprofit partners, you'll see everybody from a smaller community-based nonprofit that might just have a after-school program, for example, for 20 or 30 kids, all the way to national nonprofits that are serving much larger regions and maybe much more diverse communities and therefore much more diverse needs. And, and we can meet all of those nonprofits where they're at. Um, and that's based on the portfolio of solutions that we've developed. So we can distribute anything from a single carton of running shoes for that local after-school program all the way through to semi-trailer truckloads full of home goods into an area that is recovering from a natural disaster, for example, um, to get people back in their homes and get them back up and running. We also do a lot of work at the local level. So our retail partners are fantastic about this, where we will work with a company and match up one of their individual retail stores or maybe even a distribution center or a fulfillment center with a nonprofit in the local community. So that does a few things. It builds a great relationship between the nonprofit partner and that particular location, whether it's a store or a distribution center, but it also keeps those donated goods local. So we're uplifting local communities, but we're also saving on the carbon footprint because we don't have to transport those goods mm, to get them where, where they're needed. Yeah, it really, it really is. So there's, there's a lot of different layers here. So that's a little bit about the nuts and bolts. Companies appreciate working with us because we're really hitting three key things for them. One, we're solving a major business problem for them. If they've got excess inventory or unsold inventory, that costs money. Sherry, what would happen to that inventory if, if you know, if you weren't there, or would it get thrown away potentially? Would it actually end up in landfill? Or yeah, it's possible, and I think that their whole retail sector and brands are, are doing a much better job now at trying to avoid that set of solutions. But it's still possible that good, perfectly good, yeah, products and usable products could end up in landfills. They might get incinerated. They might otherwise go to waste. 
there's studies showing that that you know maybe up to about 25% of the excess goods in the forward supply chain that total is about 160 billion dollars every year here in the US mm-hmm. so there's studies showing that maybe about 25% of that 160 billion um, potentially goes to waste right not all of it does because there's other avenues for those excess goods a lot of companies might decide to liquidate them for example but um, donation is a, is a great alternative to any of those options and Absolutely. certainly a much better alternative for usable goods rather than going into landfills. What about food, Shari? I mean, you know, sell-by dates, there's lots of rules around that, aren't there? I think some stores get frustrated that they can't distribute food like that to homeless people, for example, or, you know, you, you run an event and there's loads of food left over, but you have to throw it away. Do you get involved in that or is that just a bit too complicated because of the rules around food? Yeah, it's a great question. So Good360 generally does not handle food. We don't handle perishable food. You're right. It is a very different process because you have to be thinking of a lot of different things in terms of the storage and the transportation. Yeah. Of perishable goods. We do have some partners who occasionally will have shelf stable items and we are very successful at placing those as long as they are usable. Um, we've got a great partnership with Coca-Cola, for example, that provides water and other beverages, um, particularly in the wake of natural disasters when water supplies have been disrupted. Uh, we have a national retailer who reached out last week and it's, it's not core to what they do, but they did have some shelf stable food items at a few different locations, and we were able to help them with that. But there's other organizations that do food distribution exceptionally well. That's really not our lane. What we focus on is on on those consumer goods. And like I said, it could be really anything under the sun except for food. Got it. Now, tell us about this uh, launch at uh, Clinton Global Initiative this week. It's called Commitment to Action. Tell us about it and what you uh, hope to achieve through this. Yeah, the Clinton Global Initiative has been such a great partner to Good360 for a number of years now. And this is actually our second commitment to action. A few years ago, we put one forward around work in disaster recovery. There's a lot of stuff that's broken with how we uh, collectively respond to disasters. Um, And just to give you a sense of what that looked like, uh, about 60% of goods that are donated during times of disaster are either end up in landfills or go to waste because they're not the right goods, the right people at the right time. So that was our first commitment to action and partnering with CGI and having access to them as a platform to get exposure and awareness around that that commitment to action. We asked companies and nonprofits to sign on to a pledge to just do a better job um, and align with some key principles around disaster recovery. So that was such a great experience that we returned to the program this year and said, well, let's let's go even bigger. Let's lean into Good360's core competencies around product philanthropy or in-kind giving, um, and let's start to make some inroads in terms of holding retailers and brands and other companies even more accountable for what happens to these excess goods. So the commitment to action that was approved by CGI for us this year, and we just announced it yesterday, is that we will be opening up a pledge, and we invite retailers and brands and manufacturers to agree to help us track and divert another $500 million in goods, keeping those out of landfills or from otherwise going to waste over the next two years. And instead of destroying or dumping those goods, to donate them and to help us drive even more social outcomes, um, being able to distribute those needed goods. So we think that's very achievable. Uh, Like I said, we distributed over $2.5 billion in goods last year alone. 
So an incremental 500 million over the next two years. Uh, we have some work to do ahead of us, but with the cooperation and uh, partnership of the retailers that we already work with and the brands we already work with, plus those that, that we'd like to be able to support, we should have no problem hitting that goal. We wish you well with that. Um, and to finish Thank up, you. we are doing uh, our conference uh, PR Decoded. It's about purpose in a few weeks in Chicago. And one of the sessions is about charity fatigue, if you like. You know, people um, almost zoning out, you know, not donating enough because they feel they're getting bombarded with asks. And I don't know whether that's post-COVID or or just in general because of social and you get so much more exposure to things. Do you see any of that? And and what is the solution to that? Um, and, and maybe fatigue too, because what you said was very important, that, that they sometimes feel that the the money is going in and not necessarily producing the effect that it should. And the fact that the wrong type of goods are going somewhere is an example of that. Have, have you got any uh, opinions on that sort of uh, trend? I do. And you're absolutely right. I think, I think we're seeing that, uh, that fatigue for sure. Uh, where we see it the most acutely is in disaster recovery. And I think back to the fall, the late summer and fall of 2017, where Hurricane Harvey hit in Houston. And then right on the heels of that, we had hurricanes Irma and Maria. And there was such an outpouring of resources and help for Hurricane Harvey. And as there should have been, that was a massive storm and, and caused significant damage. Um, but by the time Irma and Maria happened, people, companies, organizations, funders had sort of allocated and spent their budgets on what they had available, you know, for that particular cause that year. And as we've seen the frequency and intensity of natural disasters on the rise, I think we are seeing more and more of that fatigue, right? The media cycles are so much shorter now that the media moves on because there's another big story or, or worse, even another big disaster. I read something the other day on the Chronicle of Philanthropy site that um, the average number of days between billion dollar disasters now is only 18 days. So around the globe, every 18 days, there's another billion dollar disaster. And back in the early 80s, that elapsed time between billion dollar disasters was 89 days. So oh, wow. that's a big difference. And yeah, a lot more of those events happening and a lot more requests coming out for support. So we definitely see that. And I think that a way around that or a way to a solution for that is we've got to continue to sort of shine the light on these um, issues and these events that are happening so that the media can continue to play a really important role in making sure that these populations or these areas that are impacted, whether it's by a natural disaster, a humanitarian disaster, or just sort of the, the general day-to-day -day pandemic of poverty, for example, that those, those um, situations are continue to be highlighted. And then for those of us that are in the space where we're trying to tackle and resolve some of these issues, we have to continue to demonstrate our value. So for Good360, what that looks like is not just, hey, give us your excess goods. Of course, that sometimes happens. But we go to companies and say, look, we're going to help you help everybody else. So you give us our excess goods. We're going to solve that business problem for you. But we're also going to do two other really important things for you as an organization. One is that we are going to be able to keep goods from going to waste. So as you do your ESG planning, 
you can use donation, your donation strategy as a way to demonstrate your progress towards sustainable and zero waste outcomes. And then the third piece of it is around that social impact piece, which also ladders up to a company's ESG strategy and goals. So business goals, environmental and social uh, impact outcomes give us a really strong platform to go to these companies and show that they can do something that is good for business, but it's also doing good for our communities. Yeah. And uh, communication is a massive part of that, of course, as well. So we'll dig into that at PR Decoded. But uh, listen, keep up the great work, Shari, and it's good to hear from you. And uh, we'll get your input on some of the stories coming up. Frank, let's dig in a bit more to our 25th anniversary content. There was so much to go through this morning. What were the things that particularly stood out for you? There's so much, really. Uh, And I talked about the top firms in 1998 versus today, which was really it was eye-opening. I mean, it was uh, it was really interesting to look at. And, um, you know, for instance, uh, the top 10 at the time included three different firms that are now part of Weber Shanwick, right? Trivia yeah. question. We, we could have we could have done we trivia. We should have done the this, PR you know? Week quiz, shouldn't yeah. we? Yeah. In retrospect, maybe we should have done trivia somehow. But we also have really great family trees, uh, including the PR Week staff, the PR Week 40 under 40 family tree, which, like, uh, I mean, there's so many big names from that 40 under 40 family tree that are out there now. Um, also, the LeGrand Foundation, GE, which is considered just, just such a great, I don't want to call it a farm system because that almost downgrades them, but such a great feeder of talent throughout the industry um, and many, many other don't things. Don't forget the one you did, fella. Well, I mentioned the the top agency one. White House press secretaries. Yeah, uh, and that's interesting too in that um, it, you know, it, it, it's not such a uniform path once people um, leave that top job and the top communications job in the White House. And, um, you know, we've seen people go all different kinds of routes yeah, uh, when they get out of there. Um, it's a family and, tree of every single White House press secretary since 1998 that Frank put together. Really interesting piece. Yeah. it's a, Look, there's a lot of really good content um, coming out of our silver anniversary issue. Um, and some of the favorite ones for me are also the uh the biggest social media moments of the past 25 years which is interesting because that's really only the past 10 years um but some of them like the ice bucket challenge um are actually among the biggest news stories i think uh of the past 10 or 15 years as well i mean you think about how much money that raised right crazy amount of money Duncan in the dark dunk in the dark i do remember that one too during the super bowl tough to Many, many think pieces have been written about the, the dunk yeah. in the dark ad. Yeah, and, that was uh, that is a, a really good one. So that's the tweets that uh, define the 25 tweets that define social media. I like the one about what they say, what they really yeah, mean. Yeah, that's good. Um, which uh, you and Larkin He did a together. nice job on that. Yeah. Um, I'm also a sucker for the, the forefathers pieces because yeah. I, I think it's really interesting to um, – to see these guys get together, and and it was interesting because because Richard Edelman blogged about it this week, and I, I guess I didn't realize that his father and Harold Burson were not argumentative throughout, <laughs> but butted heads a few times. They were competitive. The so yeah, that was a feature we did in our tenth anniversary in two thousand eight. Yeah. It was where we got together Al Golan, Harold Burson, David Finn, and Dan Edelman for a lunch in yeah. Chicago, and Richard Edelman was there, and so was Fred Cook actually from Golan, Julia Hood, and. Uh, uh, Keith O'Brien, former editors in chief of PR Week, they uh, hosted the lunch. So we reprinted the feature, and then we did a follow-up feature called Succession, um, which talked to you know Richard and Fred and others, Pat Ford from Burson, 
about uh, how they about their legacy because sadly they're all all, all four are yeah. no longer with us. Yeah. Then. So, but they were really four of the people who who built the industry, weren't they? Yeah, the and I um period. I I never had the pleasure of meeting Dan um uh, or uh, David Finn, but I I will tell you I I sat next to Al Golan. Uh, at a at a PR, I think it was the Hall of Fame dinner once, and he he was just such a, a lovely, lovely guy, yeah. and, and and just great to talk to, and just friendly, and and would love to regale you with stories, and and just a terrific. Person. Same with Harold, he was still going until that ninety eight ninety nine, well, and he was yeah. and what he said. It, was still just as relevant as it was forty years. Before. Yeah, I agree, and and I remember Harold's office more than anything with yeah. the old radio, and you know we've been talking about the charts he had in the office, and he was, you know, it, it's such a incredible thing to see all that stuff in person. Yeah, so uh, we won't give away the agencies. We want you to go and look at the uh, <laughs> the top ten then yeah. versus now, but you, the top three back then versus now is really interesting to look at. And, and, uh, and also, if you're curious, there's there's a great column by um, the founder of Haymarket, uh, Michael Heseltine, about uh, really bringing the brand over here. And I think there's some interesting tidbits in there that that uh, people would find interesting as well. Yeah, that's the story about how the the market invited Haymarket Media, which is PR Week's owner, in basically back in 1997, 98, uh, to, come in, to come in and really do what they'd been doing in uh, Europe and Asia and uh, set up a, a, a high-quality trade publication for the industry. And hopefully we've helped reflect and build and grow with the industry, which I think we have, and we've really – um, try to reflect that. And, and we've tried to reflect looking forward, not just back. So what's the industry going to look like in 25 years? What do young professionals think? It's a great feature there from Jess Ruderman and Brandon Dura did the, uh, what does, what's PR going to look like in 2048? So listen, it's a massive package of content. You can check it out online now at prweek.com. There's a homepage, a special homepage for it. You can uh, see all the articles there. There will be a special print edition that will be ready for PR Decoded and the Purpose Awards in Chicago, and you'll receive your mailed copy. I think it'll be nice to look at that in print. And uh, we'll have some pop-up stands with the family trees at all our events over the next six months. So if you're coming to our um, anniversary party on Thursday evening at Sotheby's, uh, 6 p.m., we'll, you'll be able to look at them then. You'll be able to look at them at PR Decoded, at 40 Under 40, and, of course, at the 25th anniversary PR Week Awards next uh, March in New York City. So great work by the team and really nostalgic. We did do the family tree of everyone who ever worked on PR Week. Unless you know different, someone out there, did we forget someone? Go and have a look at it. And uh, I'm sure we must have missed one or two folks off, but that was fun to – Fun to put that together, and um, yeah, the GE one is is terrific. So let us know what you think of those family trees, and there'll be more of those coming down the line as well over the next six months. So great stuff! Uh, all right, let's talk about CGI and uh, the United Nations General Assembly. Frank, it's that week in New York where you it don't is. really want to get an Uber or a cab, do you? Because no. it's absolute gridlock. <laughs> <laughs> You're limited to the subway most of the week if you want to make anything remotely on time. Um, couple of takeaways from the Clinton Global Initiative, which, again, is relaunched um, uh, after it, it was away for a few years while Hillary Clinton was, was running for president. So uh, some really interesting things. Tough to, to beat the Pope as a keynote speaker, isn't it? You know, even if he was virtual from, from Rome. Yeah, we'll get Sherry's thoughts on that. Um, but, uh, you know, he, w- he was speaking to the former president about climate 
and just a sense of urgency of how powerful people or people with a lot of money can uh, take action uh, on this. And that's um, been one of the running themes uh, you notice in the coverage of CGI just this year. Uh, and we'll come back to this one with the UN in a bit, but also the question of, you know, rebuilding Ukraine after the war ends uh, and initiatives to help the Ukrainian people, many of whom are still displaced. Uh, and, and, you know, a fair amount of them who have, who have been in other countries in Western Europe or, or in the U.S. even, uh, and, and helping these folks adjust after they've been yeah. forced to flee. I've got friends back in England who have Ukrainian refugees yeah, living yeah. with them yes. um, and uh, helping them out. So, yeah. um, Shari, what, you're on the ground up at the Clinton Global Initiative. What's the mood there? What's right. really stood out for you and what are people talking about? Yeah, I think that one of the best things about these kinds of gatherings, right, is just the energy and the enthusiasm just feeds on itself. And so I just I've sensed a lot of optimism and folks that I've spoken to during sessions or at the different breaks. Um, there's people are inspired by hearing the different stories. I think this is one of the only venues that brings together people that are in sort of disparate but maybe related areas, right? So I've heard. Um, as Frank said, we've heard a lot about kind of caring for the the planet. We heard about we've heard about climate change, but we've also heard about things like food insecurity and mental health and gun violence, um, issues that maybe disproportionately affect certain populations like indigenous peoples, um, gender equity, right? And, and, and in some interesting way, there are threads that kind of bring all of these things together. And in a lot of cases, I might not be at a conference with folks that are discussing gender equity specifically because of what I do, but it is so enlightening and it gives you such a good window on what are truly global issues. And there certainly is, as Frank said, just, you know, the, the, I think the common message too is around urgency, whether it's around climate change, whether it's around the war in Ukraine, it's, you know, the whole theme of CGI this year is keep going. And it's the recognition that there's been a lot of great work done and there's still a lot of important work left to do. How much is business represented up there, Shari, and in the, in the sort of sessions and in the halls? Yeah, it's a pretty good cross-section. I'd say that most of the folks that I've interacted with have been more on like the agency, nonprofit side, some for-profit organizations for sure. It's definitely a cross-sector representation of folks that are, are committed to addressing some of these issues. Um, and that's another theme that we've heard throughout a lot of the sessions is the notion of collaboration and the recognition that so many of these issues are way too big and way too complex for one person, one organization, or in many cases, even one sector to address on their own. So bringing those, bringing those sectors together is critical to charting out solutions that are going to make the most sense for some of these challenging issues. Yeah, it's good to hear that there's optimism in the air because let's be honest, it's not optimism everywhere. And, uh, you know, the terms, even the terms ESG or sustainability in some quarters have become dirty words, haven't they? So it's good that and keep true. going is a, is a very relevant, uh, you know, topic theme in that respect. So um, it's good to hear that people are still fighting the good fight, as it were. But uh, I guess they've got to be realistic as well about what the, the macro environment they're operating in. Right. I think that's exactly right. And there's been a good balance, too, of recognizing efforts that are happening maybe on a larger scale, larger organizations or larger movements, but then also 
new organizations or smaller organizations that are, are taking charge of certain things and affecting change in their local community. And that's just as important because it really is going to be the sum of all of these individual actions that ultimately move the needle on any of the big things that we're talking about, from climate change to gender equity to all of the things in between. Yeah. Frank, climate change is a big theme and Clean Creatives has done its latest campaign. And then we also did a story about a really interesting approach to sustainability from Apple with its film. Do you want to talk us through those two stories? Sure. Let's start with Clean Creatives. So this is largely an out-of-home campaign and uh, it's targeting a few different agencies or networks, uh, among them Edelman, McCann, Ogilvy, Publicis Group, and um, basically creating posters targeting the employees of these agencies that show the, um, the the unforgettable orange skies in uh, New York uh, from earlier this summer that were caused by the Canadian wildfires and tying that to fossil fuels. Um, so really trying to get uh, a response out of the agency employees uh, to pull these firms uh, away from their fossil fuel clients. Um, yeah, this is a story we're always following and we'll see what kind of success they have. Yeah, they've, um, done, they've done that with an out of home. They campaign have, yeah. near to the agency's HQs, I guess. Yeah. Now, what what they have succeeded in is there are some firms that have said, uh, you know, we're refusing to work with fossil fuel clients, and and they have gotten that response. Interesting to see if they can push it further in any way. So. Yeah, that that was interesting to see that. And then, of course, we should say that the agencies targeted their sort of raison d'etre for working with uh, energy companies, fossil fuel companies, whichever way you want to describe them, is that it's better to be helping them transform rather than just uh, abandoning them to, um, you know, bad actors, as it were. Now, you can, a lot of nuances and layers to that story, but that's, we should say that is the argument. Anyway, tell us about this Apple film. It was a lot of fun, wasn't it? But very effective as well. Yeah, it's their ESG report. And, um, You'll hear from people out there in the industry that ESG reports are often very boring and uh, actually a huge load to put together and take a lot of a lot of time and a lot of hours. And and this one was more thematic. It was a video. It had uh, it had some famous actors in it, uh, including one is Mother Nature talking to Tim Cook about how uh, really quizzing him about what the the company is doing to to get to a better environmental place. I want to see you do more of this. You will. When? By 2030, all Apple devices will have a net zero climate impact. All of them? All of them. They better. They will. Critics have been quick to say, though, that it's a great, colorful way to talk about your sustainability efforts. Uh, however, they're questioning whether Apple's products actually back this up uh, and whether there's actually some some meat to this report uh, and whether they're doing everything they should be. So uh, it's an interesting way of talking about it by Apple, but there are critics who will point out that uh, it might not be as environmentally friendly as it appears. Yeah, because they did make some very big claims yes. in that uh, video. Shari, what did you think? First of all, are ESG reports boring? And secondly, <laughs> what did you think of Apple's approach to uh, maybe trying to jazz it up a bit? Yeah, that is the that is a bit of a challenge for sure. There's a lot of really important things that get measured and a lot of the interest gets lost in the data and sort of the dryness of just presenting numbers. So in true Apple fashion as masters of marketing, I thought this was really a smart move for them for sure. Um, what I liked about it was they did a great job on the storytelling piece of it, right? If we're 
looking at an ESG report with numbers, what are we likely to remember? But that five or so minute video with, um, and am I allowed to sort of give the spoiler alert on who the famous actor was, or should we leave Absolutely. that to stuff yeah, on yeah. their own? <laughs> okay. no, so I think right. leveraging, that was a smart decision too. Octavia Spencer as the, uh, as mother nature, she has such a commanding presence and she, she plays that role incredibly well. She's, she comes across as the authority that she should be um, in that role. And the storytelling I think around it is great. There were some, there were some great claims, some big claims for sure. So as you said, it will really be about backing that up with the data. I don't think this excuses the data and the work that goes into um, and the rigor that goes into pulling all of that together and understanding how your organization is working and, and what the impact of your products or services really is. But I thought this was a very clever uh, way to do this to get consumer. What I like about it too is a way to get consumer interest, right? Because the SG reports, yeah. they could be 20, 30, 50 pages long. Um, most consumers aren't flipping through those to really understand what the issues are and what the progress is against um, against some of those issues. This in five minutes, it was, you know, it, it, you got it. You got it as a consumer on why it matters. Um, everything from, from planting trees and forests to uses of water. So it really put it into storytelling terms that, that uh, the general audience, I think, will, will really appreciate. And as we, you know, companies are demonstrating more about their social responsibility and understanding what it means to be maybe a purpose-led organization, those things are important to potential customers and to your existing and potential um, employees. employees. So yeah. smart from that perspective as well. Yeah, um, I, I agree. And um, I think it did get to a lot of people that it wouldn't have otherwise. And I, I don't know if it went viral, whatever that means these days, but it certainly got a lot of attention. Uh, right. The big chat in the newsroom, Frank, is is Tim Cook going to win an Oscar for his acting performance in that video? <laughs> it sounds like probably not. <laughs> Indeed. But Although so the stare down at the end with him and Mother Nature was good. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, she 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 bought the, she bought the arguments, mm. but then she she would stick stick to the script. Frank, big weekend for media interviews, wasn't it? And uh, really interesting to see the first uh, iteration on Meet the Press. This is Meet the Press with Kristen Welker. Good Sunday morning. We begin this new chapter of Meet the Press. Kristen Welker, the new host there, interviewing former President Trump. And um, over on 60 Minutes, President Zelensky was interviewed as well. Um, what did you take out of both of those from a content point of view, but also from, uh, you know, as a journalist and, and the way the, those uh, interviews were conducted? Well, I, I thought the Zelensky interview on 60 Minutes was kind of exactly what I thought it would be uh, in that. You know, look, he's obviously very aware that in a lot of Western countries, there's a waning appetite for, you know, not endless spending uh, being given to Ukraine for defense and for other things, but uh, that patients might be running out a bit and that, that people are, are getting impatient with, you know, not, not a blank check per se, but it, it is a lot of money. Yeah. And um, and he's visiting D.C. this week as well. Yes. So and this was also a theme of President Biden's uh, address to the U.N., not to forget about Ukraine and to keep them in focus as, as they continue to struggle against the Russians. So that has been a big theme of the week. Uh, now, with the with the Meet the Press interview, Kristen Welker, I think, is a terrific journalist and, um, you know, good luck to her. It, it's one of the it's one of the, you know, prime roles in TV news to be hosting Meet the Press. Really, it's just a, a legendary spot. But 
Um, you know, I, I think it's a content decision to have Trump on at this point. Um, you know, look, this is this weekend was Rosh Hashanah, and I think a lot of people are, I, I won't repeat it, but are aware of what he put out on social media, uh, you know, mentioning, you know, quote unquote, liberal Jews and voting in elections. And I think if you want to put somebody on that is, you know, putting out messages like this wildly, I mean, I mean, that is that's a choice to to be doing that and to be platforming these people. And keep in mind, this is also somebody who hasn't shown any remorse whatsoever for January 6th or, or for all of the disinformation or the violence that occurred around that. So, uh, again, if you're platforming somebody like that, you you are that's a choice you're making and that has consequences. And I'm not suggesting people don't cover the election down the middle or don't cover it straight, but there are different ways to cover an election. So I think that that is one thing I, I, you know, it's rare to be able to see an interviewer who has really kept Trump on focus. We were talking about Jonathan Swan earlier, uh, who, who had a lot of, a lot of notes, uh, when he was doing it. And, um, that might be the only real way to do it because, you know, I, I think every reporter and I, I can, it's a very difficult job interviewing people sometimes. And the thing that is extremely difficult as a reporter to be prepared for is somebody who just might say anything that's completely off the wall at any given moment. And it's impossible to prepare for all of those different scenarios. And sometimes you're just, you're just shocked at what you're hearing and it's, it's tough to pivot quickly. Now I think Swan did a really good job at it. I think she, she did less of her job uh, this weekend, but again, it's a really, really hard interview to do. Um, yeah, Swan was fact-checking as he went, which yes. is the ultimate, really, and you've got to be very skilled to do that. Yeah. Uh, um, NBC was fact-checking as they went too, but no, but Kristen wasn't uh, confronting uh, Trump with with those facts. Yeah. She was on some of them because she did. Ha- she was on top of some of them, but she she wasn't on every single issue. Whereas Jonathan was. On the other hand, hers was a more polished broadcast interview, right. whereas Jonathan's was for more for a. a you know, uh, it wasn't a formal. Well, maybe it was. Well, his was TV. his was also very specifically about COVID in a yeah. lot of ways, yeah, and, yeah. and there were things. It was, I think, you know, data sets that he could very quickly refer to, uh, whereas hers was different. She kept him, you know, because he goes off and says whatever he wants, whatever right. the question. And he she would constantly bring him back to uh, trying to answer the question. It was interesting that if you remember when Trump was on sixty Minutes with Leslie Stahl. Um, a few years ago, the whole interview was put on YouTube by Trump's right. team because they said it was edited to put, paint him in a bad light. Whereas this time, NBC put it out proactively on YouTube. And, Which you I know, think is smart. And, very and, smart. Yeah, yeah and I, smart. I think that's smart. And, and uh, I watched the whole thing, actually. And, and I think they probably did that somewhat defensively, knowing that, yeah. that it would get out there anyway. Exactly. So, so. But I actually think also, I, I think it will, have, it will have been pretty good for Trump. Frankly, See, I, with, with his base, um, I I think it will and it won't because I think I I think yes on a lot of things, but he the comments he made about an abortion ban have not gone over well with a lot of parts of his base too, and mm-hmm. he's gotten some blowback on that because there are people who would like to vote for him but don't think he's strong enough on this issue now. Well, uh, he so knows I, that that was a big issue during the midterms that. That the Republicans lost out yeah. on, doesn't he? So no, I I will say I think that uh, I will say that look, he's not going to do any Republican debates. It looks it looks like, but I think his decision to try to step in to this to the labor dispute in Michigan 
at least on paper, and at least in theory with a normal politician is a smart move to go and try to, you know, drive a wedge between, uh, you know, a group of people who are, are traditionally part of the Democratic yeah. base and, and who are dissatisfied in some ways right now. And I think that's a smart move. We will see how it turns out because there's such an unpredictable nature to everything he does. It's, it's hard to actually say what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, some people were speculating what a, what a 120 minute interview with President Biden would look like, you know, and it'll be interesting to see how much he does because he's been fairly press shy, hasn't he? From he, he has. So far. Yeah. To be fair, he, he has done, I think, 60 minutes recently and he has, he has done some broadcast, but I don't think he's done nearly enough as people would, would like to see him doing. And even as some advocates of his would say that he should be doing in some cases too. Um, he did a couple, uh, every business and brand is watching these and seeing whether their name comes up came comes up and a couple of companies did i think jp morgan came up he was um, hammering the banks and what have you but yeah uh, fascinating stuff did you see those interviews shari do you have any thoughts on on them yeah i didn't see either of them live uh, due to travel but i did catch up on some of the pieces afterwards and i think uh, you're, you're right it's an interesting choice um that Meet the Press made. And I'd love to see, well, so first of all, full disclosure, I'm Canadian and cannot vote here in the US. Um, I live here legally, but I don't have my American citizenship, so I can't vote. So it's kind of an interesting perspective to have to see. Full disclosure, I'm English and I can't <laughs> either. <laughs> I never would have guessed. Um, so it is, it is kind of interesting from that perspective to sort of, I feel like, uh, maybe a little bit more objective. And I think the things that I take away from sort of the big picture are, I'd really like to hear more about some of the other candidates. Like it's a pretty interesting field on the Republican side. And uh, it, it would be it would be great to hear more about some of the other candidates and, and what their platforms are. And I've seen a little bit of that, uh, but not not a lot. It, it seems like we tend to keep kind of going back to some of the some of the same stories. Um, and then I just, I, I think too, that I've heard a, what I've heard a lot of is from Americans, from voters that, you know, these are the two gentlemen in this case, if both win their, you know, both kind of go ahead and, and win their party's nominations. Um, and aren't there other options? So I, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how, how this election plays out. I'm, I'm sensing sort of a lack of um, enthusiasm among yeah. the general public I think, on the choices uh, that are Trump available. Trump has done a very good job of pretty much sidelining the whole of the rest of the field, hasn't he? He's, he kept saying, I'm 59 points ahead. Why should okay. I debate them? And, you know, he's, he has a point, I guess, you know. Um, but uh, I guess there's a there's a potential scenario, Frank, where he could yes. be in jail. So we'll have to start looking at other candidates a bit more closely. But at the moment, so you're right, Sherry, he has uh, um, sidelined them. And, and you, your point about how you consumed that content is also very relevant because I think people are consuming it much more that way now than sitting down on Sunday evening and watching 60 Minutes or watching Meet the Press on Sunday morning. They do tend to pick up on clips on social or on YouTube. And uh, so you've got to think about that as well, because a certain, that, that content will right. be presented or come over in a different way. So yeah, and that's how the communication around everything is is done these days. So yeah, interesting stuff. Frank, uh, quickly, we uh, Jess Ruderman, our senior reporter, was down at the Forbes Power Women's Summit last week. It was interesting stuff, including uh, the White House press secretary was there, Karine yeah, Jean-Pierre. Really good lineup uh, that Forbes had. Kudos to them on that. So uh, one day they had both um, 
Corinne Jean-Pierre and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is a veteran uh, diplomat who has worked on behalf of the U.S. for a long time. A uh, really, really impressive individual. Um, and talking about their experiences as women representing uh, the U.S. government, really, really important to point out, you know, these are extremely high-pressure jobs. Uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, of course, is um, is the first person of color to, to be the White House press secretary. Um, she's the first out LGBTQ individual to to be in the role. And, and that all she's of that, that family tree. Frank. Yes. And that all comes with a lot of challenges in and of itself because of, of um, people that will attack her for that. Um, but I think that when you when you listen to the write up of her uh, or what Linda Thomas Greenfield, who is the ambassador to the U.N., talking about, you know, extremely difficult things, working in Sudan, working in Chad, uh, and trying to bring some hope to people there who are dealing with a refugee crisis. Um, so it's a really interesting write-up, and I'm sure it was a very interesting panel to see in person. Yeah, check out Jesse's pieces. She had a great time down there. And there's also there's some other great panels, too, that I want to uh, tip the cap to about, you know, uh, women's health care issues. Uh, and also a great one with the uh, women's basketball legend Sue Bird. Mm. Uh, who talked about the power of women's sports to empower girls, uh, which is a is an important message. Well, it is, and we've talked about that because the Spanish soccer team, women's soccer team, that story yeah. runs and runs because they've actually picked this. They, they fired the two guys eventually, but they haven't picked uh, the young woman involved I, I'm laughing in the latest it's, squad. It's yeah, kind of unbelievable. It, it's incredibly tone deaf. It this is. This whole organization from, from <laughs> top to bottom, I mean, jeepers. I mean, the U.S. organization leaves some head scratching every yeah. now and then, but uh, this is really—it's uh, it's probably a topic for another show. But um, yeah, since we've been following that story, let's finally just wrap up, uh, Frank. Big stories in the industry this week: um, Lisa Ross taking a leave of absence. The U.S. CEO of Edelman—that was—that uh, was broke this morning as we speak. Yes, that's right. Um, so she's taking a leave of absence. Uh, and the global president at Edelman and COO Matthew Harrington is going to, of course, he's a longtime agency veteran over at Edelman, is going to absorb her responsibilities and serve as acting U.S. CEO. All of those changes are effective immediately. Uh, not much other official comment or information coming out of the agency. So Lisa Osborne Ross had been at Edelman since 2017. She uh, was at APCO before that, worked at Ogilvy, and worked in the Clinton administration before that. Um, few uh, a few big names have left Edelman recently. So you have. you have her, you have Dave Sampson retiring at the beginning of September. Uh, you have Jim O'Leary leaving to become North America CEO at Weber Shanwick earlier this year, and you you also have uh, Steve Bean. Well, yes, but I was gonna I was gonna go with Pharrell Williams. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Leaving the partnership uh, with Edelman and United Entertainment Group that was known as Mighty Dream. Uh, so you do have some high profile leaders. And that was very much a Lisa, Lisa Osborne. Yes, yeah, she was co chairing that, yeah. Russ uh, initiative, wasn't it? <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, um, interesting stuff. They've also, the, the CEO of Edelman's China operations left recently. So, yes. yeah, interesting goings on over there. Josh Ernest, a former White House press secretary, he's been promoted at United. Yes, he is also on this, the said family tree that you've mentioned. Uh, so just, got just a, trying to big up your work. Yeah, there, got a bit, <laughs> he got a big promotion this morning. Um, 
He is now going to be EVP of Communications and Advertising. They also appointed Terry Fiorello as EVP of Government Affairs and Global Public Policy, more on the lobbying side. Um, so uh, Josh Ernest joined United in 2018 as SVP and Chief Communications Officer, uh, probably best known to our audience as former President Obama's final uh, press secretary when he was in the White House from 2014 to January 2017. He he actually served through the entirety of the Obama administration coming in in 2009. Yeah, and you can hear Josh at PR Decoded in Chicago on December the 11th and, sorry, October, getting ahead of myself, October 11th and 12th. So make sure you get your ticket. And finally, Paul Gennaro, well known to PR Week. He sure is an, an industry veteran in and of himself. Paul Gennaro is uh, succeeding Kevin Hine as the communications lead over at New York Life. The New York Life headquarters, not far from here. Maybe we'll see Paul at Shake Shack or around the park. Yeah. Uh, down on 25th or 26th Street. Um, so um, Kevin Hine is set to retire at the end of the year. He's working on the transition. Paul Gennaro's new role is SVP uh, and chief communications officer uh, at New York Life. Obviously, a, a, a blue chip company, a well-known company. Um, uh, Gennaro has worked uh, at companies including Voya uh, and several others, including AECOM, the architecture giant. Yeah. Good luck to Paul in his new gigs. So thank you, Frank. Shari, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of the week at CGI. Thank you so much. I think we'll be seeing you in October as well at the Purpose Awards. So look forward to that. And uh, it's been great to chat to you. Yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. And don't forget, like I said, 25th party at Sotheby's Thursday evening. Um, we might have one or two spots left. PR Decoded Purpose Awards. I've punted them twice already, but I'm going to do it three times. It's in Chicago. It's on the 11th and 12th of October. It's going to be a great event. Purpose Plus is the theme. 40 Under 40, we have a family tree of the alumni, and this year's uh, honorees will be honored and on the 26th of October in New York City. And actually, two of them are relatives of PR forefathers. So interesting stuff, grandchildren. PR Week Awards, the first deadline is the 29th of September. So that's creeping up quickly. The final deadline will be a week or two after that. And then we'll be celebrating in New York City next March, the 25th Awards on the 14th of March. Finally, the Hall of Fame, going to be a great event this year. 4th of December in New York. But uh, yeah, that's all we got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. 